Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. We talk almost exclusively about reliability on this show, specifically reliability of circuit assemblies. We discuss production best practices, design for manufacturing and reliability, failure analysis, and so much more. We've reviewed the latest trends in Industry 4.0, connectivity of machine to machine and machine to management. We've discussed big data and how to make all of our newly acquired data relevant and actionable. For all this to occur, our computers must function properly. They must perform the assigned tasks and communicate large sums of data, very large sums of data. What happens to our production line if the computer stopped functioning? What would happen if our networks ceased to operate? We've all witnessed the airline industry grind to a halt several times just in the last year due to computer failures and connectivity issues. The fact is, very few industries can function properly or even at all if the computer systems fail. I'm not referring to quality issues within the computer or the network's internal circuit assemblies. I'm referring to malware, ransomware, and other nefarious actions brought on by hackers and other bad actors with the intent to disrupt companies, industries, and governments, frequently with the goal of returning or promising to return your own data in exchange for an exorbitant payment, blackmail. Our industry, like many others, is completely dependent upon computers and connectivity. Without either, most production lines would simply sit idle. How can we avoid this terrifying scenario? How do hackers gain access to our computers and networks? How can we add reliability to our computer and network policies and procedures? To answer these and other related questions, I invited a network security expert onto the show. Adrian Franco's co-founder and CEO of Zeta Sky, a managed IT support and cybersecurity services company, lives in the world of cybersecurity. He and his company protect their customers' networks through the implementation of security best practices and constant training, both for his customers and for his own staff. After all, as I speak, hackers and other bad actors are hard at work searching for the next scam, vulnerability, and the opportunity to score a huge payday all at our expense. It's my pleasure to welcome Adrian Francos to the show. Adrian, thanks for joining me today. That was a great intro. I think you've just covered it all, Mike. We're good to go. There we go. We've covered everything. Thanks for watching. We'll see you in two weeks. There we go. So uh, for my audience that, that knows me and has, has watched or listened to the show over the years, they know that I'm always fascinated with company names. You know, there, there's two ways to name a company. You could call it Franco's Industries, right? Or I could call my company Conrad Inc. or whatever. Um, but I, I'm always fascinated and intrigued by interesting names, particularly names that are not part of the um, vernacular every day. Uh, and and uh, Zeta Sky kind of falls into that category. Um, how did you come up with the name Zeta Sky, and does it have any kind of meaning? 
You know, it, it's a, I wish I had a really exciting story for that. Uh, I think it's taken on a meeting, but it started with just trying to find a name that was different. I think we achieved that. Uh, but when we first started, we really had a, and we still do have a core service offering in cloud computing, right? That's That's been our core focus and security revolves around that. And so we knew, when I say we, my CTO and our co-founder, we're like, we don't want to use the word cloud. All these companies are being born using cloud this, cloud that, and I think people are tired of hearing that word. Uh, so we figured, okay, sky, right? Let's use sky. Let's use something else besides cloud. Um, and Zeta was just to us, instead of beta testing something, Zeta is going to be the last solution you need. So we put those together, came up with Zeta Sky. Um, some companies, it's funny, we've had clients refer to us as Zetaski because when you look at our email domain, it's all one word. They think we're a Russian company. We're not. <laughs> just to be clear, right? Just to be clear. Yeah. Um, if you were to have started your business in the 70s or sooner, that would have been the worst name because you would have been the last listing in the phone book. Right? <laughs> I remember back in the day when we had phone books that were more than just doorstops. Um, you know, if you're looking for a plumber, you would see listings for AAAA plumbing and then AAA plumbing and AA plumbing and A plumbing just so that they could force themselves to the front of the phone book. Um, but um, uh, if you're doing something that involves alphabetical order, kind of screwed there, my friend. Yeah. The good yeah. thing is we're not in the seventies because uh, there wouldn't be, I guess, wouldn't have good, a business. Yes, good, yeah. business, good old days. There, there was no no such thing as cyber hackers. Well, there was no cloud in the way we know it today in the seventies. Right. Uh, there were tiny little mini clouds um, in right. server rooms that that required false floors and high amounts of air conditioning and and large real estate. Um, provide me with in my audience with a little bit of history about. Uh, your company, Zeta Sky. What made you get into network security and, and IT support? Well, so we, uh, my background when I first started my career, I always was intrigued with business in general. I love working business to business and actually started out out of college in the correctional industry, believe it or not, on the right side of the bars. Uh, but I worked for a large company and we handled what's called the inmate welfare system. So uh, when inmates are, are in, uh, in prison or in jail, they have the ability to purchase goods. And so my company at the time that I worked for, uh, we would put in their whole system from the kiosk ordering systems to building their websites to even the counting of it. So I just learned to love technology. And of course, that was highly in a highly secure environment, right? Everything we put in place was all about security. And I, I never really thought about security much until that job. Um, and so after doing some time there, I, I uh, got acquainted with our co-founder, Olivier Matim. He's our current CTO. And uh, we saw a need for the small business space, right? So at the enterprise level, uh, they can afford every bill and whistle. I mean, there's technology out there. The Fortune 500s probably use it. You know, even competing solutions, they're going to have it. Uh, but the issue is, and I really hung out around a lot of other small businesses at the time, and we saw a need that the small medium business, what we we define everyone says that, what does that define? Anyone with, let's say, a thousand employees or less, that's small and medium in our book. And they're probably not going to have an IT department of 30 people. They're not going to have a $5 million a year budget just on security. And we really became intrigued with how do we bring those type of solutions, make them simple and affordable for the small business. And uh, close to 10 years ago, we decided, especially in our, in our region, uh, we put Zeta Sky together put a business plan, was, you know, took a little crazy leap, which I know you've probably done the same thing yourself, Mike, and uh, uh, it, it stuck. Right? We started building out really with the focus on cloud computing and security. 
and uh, that's that's how where we are today. Yeah, very good. Um, when you say inmate welfare, that almost sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's the healthiest place to be. Um, so I tend to ask questions that are kind of novel esque. They they can they can go on and on and on. Um, so get comfortable here. There's a lot of things within the electronic assembly space that keeps us all up at night uh, because our industry builds complex circuit assemblies, uh, frequently using new state-of-the-art, edge-of-the-envelope uh, technology. We're always learning new procedures uh, and methods to stay ahead of the curve uh, through technical conferences and symposiums, published papers, podcasts like this, webinars, all of that. We are constantly learning. Uh, cybersecurity, for many, is way out of our league, right? You know, I build cleaning systems, other people build reflow ovens, other people build AOI machines, other people are failure analysis experts, but probably none of those subgroups of subject matter experts within our space know a lot or really need to know a lot about cybersecurity. We just assume someone is watching out over us, either they're at their company or through managed services or something. Uh, cybersecurity, uh, well, let me, let me back up a little bit. For example, one uh, once uh, anyone is attacked by ransomware, there's often little choice uh, but to pay the ransom. Uh, I've seen many, many stories. I've talked to you many times. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to, for full disclosure, by the way, for my audience, Adrian and his company, Zetas Guy, manage my company's security in IT. Uh, we are their client. Um, and, well, of course, client. he's agreed to give me uh, 10 years of free service as a result of that. No, 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 no. No, no pay to play here. Um, but... You know, I hear stories all the time about, about, you know, they get ransomware attacks and then they bring in experts and some of the experts, you know, they're coming in after the fact, right? I'm sure you have too. We'll talk about that. Uh, but then, you know, they're basically told, SOL, there's nothing you can do except choose whether or not you want to rebuild your data or pay the ransom, right? That's, that's, it's kind of too late at that point right. for many. Right. Um, and then I'm hearing more and more cases where there's a scam on top of a scam, so the first scam is, you know, they infiltrate your system, they lock down your computers, they, they, they steal your data, they lock it down, you can't get it. And then they offer a ransom, you spend some months negotiating, maybe you work with your insurance company and you come up with some figure that no one's, that you're not happy with, they're happy with. And then you pay it through crypto and uh, they're gone. They, they, they're just disappeared into the ether. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, uh, salt in the wound. Uh, it seems to me the best way to deal with cyber attacks and ransomware and all the nefarious stuff that goes on is 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 to prevent it. That's really, from what I can see, from my layman point of view, the only way around it. Because once things are locked down, they are locked down. And if you try and unlock it, it just like it's like the the tape in in Mission Impossible. It just kind of self destructs and then it's gone forever. So let's begin by describing the various types of cyber attacks that are common today. I know there's a lot of terms for them. Uh, explain what those terms are and more importantly, what they mean. How are people getting into trouble from a cyber standpoint? Yeah, no, you're right. You, you, there's a lot to unpack in what you said because uh, just like you, we hear the same stories and unfortunately, and prevention is the best for anything, right? When we're, when we're talking about an issue in our personal lives, in our business, but we tend to put it in the back burner, right? That's just the reality of it. And so, Whenever I hear those stories of a you know hospital or a company, and, and again the stories we hear are typically the larger ones, but we as a company hear all the small medium stories of oh they had ransomware and they had they were forced to pay it, 
I mean, we even had, I'm not going to name names to put them on the spot, but we just had some re local police departments have to do that. And when I hear that, I'm so frustrated because that means the preparation was not done, right? It, nothing is 100%. You may still get a breach, but if you've got the right steps in place, you shouldn't have to pay the ransom, right? And that gets into a very sticky situation because in the last few years, the government has come out and said, you're not allowed to pay the ransom, actually. You're now donating to a known terrorist group, right? And so you... So you're kind of stuck and we can get into those details of how you can get around that and what the insurance companies do. But um, so let, to answer your question, the types of, rent, of, of breaches that we, we hear the most, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of ransomware, right? That's the most common word. By now we've all heard that term, unfortunately. And that's usually the, what we call the payload. That's sort of their end goal. But the real question is you, you don't just get ransomware out of the blue, right? You've been, your network's been breached. And 90% of the time it has to do with us as humans, right? That's just the reality. Now, you know, there's still a lot of great technology that has to be put in place and you know, that's why we're in business. But the reality is if you've got all these fancy tools from early detection to the proper backups to um, you know, what we call foothold detection too, uh, password managers, and if all that stuff's great, but if you don't actually train your staff what to look for, it's almost impossible because these hackers are smart. They run a business like you and I do. So they know what the, the tools are out on the market and they're constantly working their way around those. But the one thing that you can do is, is really educate your staff so that they know what to look for. So, you know, ransomware is still the most common um, for anyone that doesn't know what it is. Essentially, you get a virus or malware, locks all of your data, Right. So you go into work one day, uh, your staff complains to you and says, hey, I can't open these documents. It has some text file. And then there says something about we have to pay a ransom. That's what they do. They encrypt all the data. Uh, if you're really poorly prepared, they'll encrypt your backups. So now you have no choice uh, to roll back. Um, but even if you do have good backups, now what we've seen in the last couple of years is they go to exploit that data. So they may come to you and say, and when I say they, we call them threat actors, the bad guys, the hackers. They'll say, great, okay, you have your backups. We still require demand from you. They might cut the price in half. But if you don't pay this demand, we're going to publish your trade secrets. We're going to send this to your competitors. Uh, or if you have sensitive data, right? we, we do a lot of work for law firms, you know, high-end law firms that have celebrities as clients. And the last thing they want is that data being breached or it becoming a news story. Um, so, yeah, that, that's by far uh, still the most common is ransomware. Although something that is coming up, uh, it's coming back, I would say, is application vulnerabilities, right? Where your employers are doing everything right, you've got all the right systems in place, uh, but one of the apps you use or, or even a Windows service becomes vulnerable. And now a threat actor has a way into your network. Once they're in there, they can, they can uh, you know, use different tactics, whether it's ransomware um, or the last one I'll tell you about is is really where they breach your network and they don't deploy ransomware. They use you as a mule or they use you as information to now attack your vendors or attack your clients or send them fake invoices with fake uh, payment instruction, instructions to get them to pay, right? They realize maybe if we just lay dormant in a network, we can actually make more money off of this long-term, right? And, and use you as a host, so to speak. So those are sort of the main things that we see going on. We had an issue similar to what you're describing. Uh, fortunately, we've been lucky. Um, in the early days, sheer luck, we haven't been breached. Um, now, you know, we're, we have proactive measures, thank you, um, to 
help mitigate that. But one of our uh, one of our partners had their email compromised, and someone was reading their emails, and it was a, a distributor of ours who buys our equipment uh, in another country and then resells it, and. Uh, we sent them an invoice, of course. We sold them a machine. It was you know, forty or fifty thousand uh, dollars. We sent them an invoice. They then received an email from an email address similar to ours, but at first glance, it looked like it came from us. And it even had an employee name on it because they had all our correspondence, you know from the distributor side. And they sent an email to their county department and they said, this is so and so from Aqueous Technologies, which it wasn't. They said, we've changed our bank. Um, please use the following uh, SWIFT code and you know, routing numbers to, uh, to ACH, uh, you know, the next payment to us, which is forty dollars or $50,000. And they did. They didn't look at the email address carefully enough. It had a combination of our name plus a few other letters, uh, but they, you know, they just thought it was from us. It looked familiar. And they made the payment. So several weeks or you know, months later, whatever it was, we reached out and said, hey, Guys, friends, you know, we're still waiting for a payment. Yeah. And they said, oh, we paid you. Oh, gosh, sorry. Can you provide proof of payment? Because we don't see it on our end. And they sent it to us, and it was very clear instantly that it wasn't our bank. And, um, you know, they, they, they responded with, oh, it's too bad you've been hacked. And I'm like, no, you were hacked. And, you know, <laughs> I hate to say this, but you're, you still owe us the money. You paid the wrong people. And that's not our bank. You should have checked with us. And even back in the day when I was a little bit more involved in day-to-day -day operations in my company, you know, I would make the ACH payments and, and, um, uh, and the wire transfers. And every transfer, no matter what, asks you, you have to like double click. Are you sure? And they recommend that you phone, not email, phone your, um, uh, the, the company you're paying just to make sure that is the correct information. And they warn you, do not rely on any like written emails and things like that. That's uh, right. And, uh, and of course, you know, I just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like when you call IT support and they tell you the first thing to do is reboot and you go, yeah, yeah, I did that. You know, you, you just kind of do it. Um, but um, yeah, there, there's, it's something as simple as getting access to someone's email. They can do a lot of damage without technically hacking. They're not hacking into right. a system. They're just except for maybe reading the emails. They're just reading emails, and then they can oh, yeah. put a lot of things in play that are fraudulent. We've, um, seen that. We've seen that in both cases, Mike. So what you're describing, I mean, I literally, it happens so often. I literally was on a call just yesterday with the exact same situation. Uh, it was our client that we have all the protection in place. They said, hey, our, our, our client just let us know they sent $28,000 to what they, who they thought was us. And again, it's not, you don't realize it until your vendor, in case in this case it was you, Mike, reminding, hey, you're late and you're paying, right? Because they think they paid. The exact same thing. So typically somebody's email has been breached when they can really read that correspondence and go back and forth. But even outside of that, there's cases where nobody's been breached. All they do is research online. They go on LinkedIn, they find out who you are, they find out your controller or junior controller, they find out maybe who you're connected with as a client, and they just completely spoof you. Right, they're less sophisticated, but that works as well. Lower percentage of the time, but they, there's no breach involved. It's just pure what we call social engineering, just tricking people. Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, I think most people, including myself, at least used to believe that these are clever, you know, break-ins, digital break-ins, and most of the time they're not. They're not actually that sophisticated. 
um, it, it wouldn't take much for, particularly now when a lot of people are still working from home, for uh, Bob to email S uh, Sally at the office and say, hey, you know, uh, Sally, it's Bob. I Did the server password change? I can't log in. Can you confirm it? And Sally would go, oh, Bob, you're so forgetful. And she'd type the server password in. And now some bad guy in some place, some hole somewhere in the world, now has access to the server. They did not break in. Like you said, it's kind of social engineering. They, they, exactly. they just trick people in, into doing it. When it comes to all, all of these malware, ransomware, whateverware breaches, uh, are they normally based on, or, or how often are they based on software vulnerabilities versus hardware vulnerabilities versus just kind of stupid people tricks? Or I shouldn't say stupid people tricks, but ignorance yeah. uh, people yeah, tricks. It's common, right? It's, it's uh, yeah. average average computer people, and and you'd be surprised. It's, it even happens in uh, in technology firms too, which is why we spend a lot of time training our own staff. Right? But uh, it, it's northwards of ninety percent. Ninety percent of the time, it has to do with somebody took a wrong action. They clicked on a link. They entered information into a, a what we call a poison page. That would be. You think you're going to Amazon, for example. You think you're going to Microsoft.com. You log in with your credentials, but you've actually been on a, on a fake page, right? And now they've got those credentials. So 90% of the time, it's, it's, it's definitely because of human error. Now, there is still 10% of the time, which is considerable, where it's a complete application vulnerability. Typically, it's a Windows uh, or a common app like TeamViewer may have a vulnerability. And they can do what's called remote code execution. They literally will, it's a, uh, you'll hear the word zero day vulnerability. That means nobody in the world knows this exists, right? Our, and just so you know, the cybersecurity, you know, space, our industry, we're reactive. It's a game of cat and mouse. You don't know what to plug until you know there's a hole there, right? And so they create that hole. They create that vulnerability. And uh, there's some common ones we can talk about a little bit later, but they essentially can get into a network now without anybody doing anything. Now that's still, you know, only 10% of the time. But if you don't have the right tools to detect that or stop that from happening, those are very dangerous, right? Because now they can be in a network unknown for weeks at a time. And the longer time, we call it incubation period, right? The longer time a threat actor is in a network, the higher value that their breach is going to be because now they've got everything. They know who's who. They know where the money is at. You know, they know the bodies are buried, so to speak. And when the time comes to the, ask for that ransom, they've got the whole thing mapped out, right? So right. Even that's only 10% of the time in the attacks. Those tend to be the, the ugly ones, unfortunately. Yeah. And then once they blow it all up and exploit it, that's when Microsoft or whoever kind of figures out where the vulnerability was and then patches it up. But it's too late for those who, you know, it's best for those that start on zero day versus 100 day. Because by the time exactly. you get to 100-day, it's known by the world, right? Exactly. Um, let's, well, there was one question I, I didn't actually plan on asking you, but I've always been curious about this. I'm, I'm a Mac guy, right? So I, I um, do most of my, my work. I do a lot of content creation, obviously, like this. And you know, Macs are just really good for that. Uh, I know that Macs can be vulnerable. Uh, PCs can be vulnerable. Um, but it seems to me, at least from my vantage point as a layman in this subject, that... PCs are far more attacked than Macs. Now, it could be because there's more PCs out there than Macs, but I do, I'm do. i just left with the impression that Macs are either a little bit more secure or 
the hackers out there really don't like Microsoft and go after them first, maybe for some political, personal reasons. You know, maybe they don't like Bill Gates, whatever. Uh, but they seem to be a much, much bigger target, more disproportionately to their market share. Is there any truth to the fact that uh, certain operating systems are more secure just out of the gate um, than others? Uh, it, it's more a numbers game. Uh, if you look at it from the the uh, I call it the business right cybercrime you know to, to paint the picture these aren't teenagers in the basement even in another country just trying to do something for fun these are actual organizations right they have a marketing department they've got HR departments they're typically in other countries that don't really look front upon it you know it's Russia China uh, some of those countries may fund it yeah exactly and then that, we'll get into some discussion with FBI where they've you know they've seen those things. Um, but so you have to remember, just like all of us, they have a target market, right? And they look at that pie and they say, well, you know, the target market are businesses. They tend to have the funds, right? There's obviously a lot of private cyber attacks going on, but the business is the majority of the funds there where they're scoring. Um, and in those businesses, it's 95% Windows environments, right? And there's just so much more momentum on, on a Windows device. There's more uh, opportunity for uh, vulnerabilities. Right. So it's not necessarily, you know, some people may may argue that point that Mac OS is inherently more secure. Uh, you know, one thing that and Windows catching up is Mac has done a good job of forcing you to stay on the latest updates. That's a big one, too. So, you know, which is one of the double edged swords, right? Some might, you know, if you had a, if you have a five year old Mac, you're probably in trouble because now all of a sudden yeah. your old processor won't even run the new latest OS update. So you're forced to upgrade. Microsoft historically has done a bad job of that. So you can run that old XP machine if you want, you know, that's 12 years old and, and, you know, running connected to one of your pieces of equipment in your manufacturing plant. And that's why you see more vulnerabilities there, sheer number, and that there's a lot of older operating systems that have been forced to be patched or updated. Yeah, I think from a human engineering standpoint, just a common sense standpoint, Mac also has a different um, nomenclature for their operating systems. They come up with, you know, Ventura and and you know uh, Catalina, and they come up with names like that. Where Microsoft simply goes from eleven to twelve to thirteen to fourteen. Uh, and you know, if I'm if I'm in that environment and I see, oh, it just went up by one number, I'll skip a number, you know, and and you know, make sure it really works. And I think part of it also is there's always a reluctance to upgrade to a new uh, OS because particularly in the Microsoft world, it seems to me that they release something and then fix it. And that's done everywhere. Apple does the same thing, but to a smaller extent. By the time, my experience is by the time it comes out with Apple, you don't like have instant regret, you know, like, oh, I never should have upgraded. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I know in our Microsoft days, and our company networks all run off Microsoft uh, products. You know, we use Microsoft to store our data. We use you know, uh, PC-based servers, as you know. Um, so that's probably, I think your point is, is valid. I, I think Apple's may or may not be more secure, but they're generally not running entire networks. Um, exactly. in, our, in our company, anyone who does creative work has Macs, and, but the business side, the accounting, the CRMs and the uh, ERPs and all that stuff are running on, on, on you know, yeah. PC-based servers. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And you're 100% right about Microsoft using the real world as testers. I think they do their best. It's got to be uh, tough being uh, being the big one in the in the room here to, 
to put all the risk on them, right? Hey, you need to make sure this works properly before you deploy. But in every environment, most of which they don't even understand how their computers are being deployed, right? Exactly. All the apps that are out there and how they're deployed. So, so yes, um, if you have a sizable business of any size, more than 50 computers, and you just, you know, somehow your IT department is just doing automatic updates, you're probably going to have some nightmares, right? So that, yeah, that's we have to be, again, you know. We have to be careful in our world because our, our equipment um, is operated by PCs. And, you know, we actually turn off automatic updating except for security stuff um, because when they uh, when Microsoft releases a new service pack and every developer out there will, will be going, yep, happens to us too. Every time they go from service pack one to service pack two to service pack three, et cetera, it breaks. You know, all of a sudden we have to download new drivers, we have to write a little new code, um, and, and we're always, you know, uh, that's a game of cat and mouse too, even though it's not nefarious. It has a nefarious consequence uh, because uh, it'll break links to equipment. And so people tend to turn off all updating. And some of our customers are in some pretty spooky places. You know, they're ITAR, you know, which is government controlled and uh, uh, data controlled. And uh, you can't even have a computer connected to the internet. You know, it has to be just this little island. So there are a lot of um, computers out there that are not being updated uh, because their IT department just doesn't want the hassle when things break. And there are a lot of machines that are being run in our industry, slightly older machines, sometimes considerably older machines that are operated by a PC or some kind of computer system, usually a PC, um, that have long been disconnected from anything, so or, or at least from updating. And they may be connected uh, online, but they're not being updated because... Uh, you can't replace that software anymore. The company's out of business or they no longer support it. Um, so they're running this legacy product, which has vulnerabilities going back 10, 15 years. You know, totally easy. They're not on day zero. They're on day, you know, uh, uh, thousand, zero, one. You know, they're, they're, they're and, and even the most novice hacker can exploit that. They're probably surprised. Oh, my God, that's, that's still open? I'm going to go in and play. Um, so, you know, that's certainly an issue. Let's talk a little bit about vulnerabilities. Um, oh, no, I already went there. That's Microsoft. Let's not ask you the same question twice. Uh, I, I know that um, you've had meetings. You know, with, you talked earlier about the FBI. Um, I know you've had meetings. We've shared that story uh, with the FBI um, on the subject of cyber attacks and all of that, all of that stuff. Based on what you know, how likely is a hacker who successfully uh, infected someone's computer with ransomware, since that's the, the big elephant in the room, willing to provide the data back after payment. Are these like professional thieves mostly that will honor <laughs> their, their honorable thieves or, or is there a growing market in dishonorable thieves and, and taking your money and then not giving you back your data? Yeah, so it, it does happen, unfortunately, where uh, we see an organization get hit they have ransomware, they pay, and unfortunately, they, they get encryption keys, but they don't work. So there is an unwritten code from what we understand. And, and yes, we, we do quite a bit of uh, interaction with the FBI. Um, in fact, when this airs, it may, I think this may come out during Cyber Awareness Month, which is October. And we actually put on an event open to the public. Uh, be happy to put it, give you some information about it, where you can come for yourself and meet the FBI, meet CISA, uh, National Security Alliance, they come to our event and to share, right? Share knowledge with us, with, with the business owners, students, or maybe. And what, what we found out is that the unwritten, you know, the code of ethics amongst the hackers, if they have ethics, is definitely give the encryption back. Because imagine if 
all the hackers stopped giving encryption back. They'd get no more ransoms, right? The business would be like, why am I going to pay? I'm not going to get anyway. So they definitely want to have the encryption work. The problem is usually it's a mistake, right? So as odd as this sounds, if you do fail your cybersecurity prevention and you get ransomware and you don't have a good backup, you better hope it's a a pretty well-organized ransomware group, right? Because they're going to give you that encryption back. Why? They want that next company to have that faith in them that they're, they should pay the ransom. And they may even come back to you for seconds. We've seen that happen too, right? That if you paid once, they might come back in six months and, and try it again. Now, what's really been a big deal in the, in the last three or four years, uh, if you've heard of the dark web, it's basically uh, parts of the internet that you can access through different browsers like Tor. Um, it's, it's basically a, a breeding ground for hackers to trade information, sell information. Well, now they sell ransomware as a service. You can actually go on the dark web. I don't recommend you go on there. But it's like uh, it's like Fiverr for bad guys. It really is. It, they've made it so simple. So just like you were saying, Mike, in your industry, you have, you have different specialties, right? Um, the same thing, it really has become a market. So you're going to have uh, a hacking group that's going to use that software and actually send out these attacks and deal with you know their host and, and collect the ransoms. But you have software vendors that said, wait a second, I can develop some ran- ransomware as a service sell it for $49.99 a month as a subscription and make a ton of money. And so they're doing that. And now you've got these novice hackers. SAS, subscription model, SAS model, bad guys. Yeah, we call it RAS, ransomware as a service. I mean, that's a service. RAS, yeah, that's right. And so they subscribe. They're excited. They want to make some money. They, They go on the dark web. You purchase a list. So I have everybody's first name, last name, email address, phone numbers. And now I can send my phishing emails. Right, I get someone to respond. I click a link. I have them download my rent. It's all as a service for them. They get somebody. They're all excited. Oh, they think they send you the right encryption key, but they don't. And so when you get a novice that's been hacking your company, it's actually worse because it's kind of like getting bit by a baby rattlesnake, right? They're going to release all that venom. They don't know what yeah. they're doing. So if you're going to get attacked, make sure they're professional attackers because you don't want any hack hackers out there. Right. I because- mean, there's... We want to prevent in the first place, but yes. Exactly. But the, but given the choice between, you know, uh, your choice of hackers, you want people who know what they're doing rather than yes. novice hackers because they could inadvertently screw it up, even if that wasn't their intent to steal your money a yeah. second time. Uh, Think about Ocean's Eleven, right? I mean, you're, you're a, you run a casino. Do you want the guys that broke out of jail to come, you know, raid your hotel and create a scene? Or do you want it to be professionally done? And, you know, let's, let's keep right. it clean. I mean, that's right. kind of the analogy I'm thinking in my head. So after a ransomware attack, after someone pays, after they've de-encrypted your data, I'm assuming it's a pretty wise move to get all new computer hardware because they may have left a little morsel in there that allows them to do it again, right? I mean, you can't trust that hardware anymore. Is that hardware, is any part of that hardware saved or do they just, you know, put it in a giant pile and torch it uh, or do they just take the disks out? Yeah, typically what, what is recommended, um, especially when we get into large organizations and you have a forensics team and their, their legal team insurance, is at least taking out the hard drives and replacing with new fresh hard drives, uh, rebuilding uh, what's called a new active directory, kind of the brains of your network, just rebuild it from, from scratch. Is there ever uh, anything like hidden in the RAM memory that would have to you know be pulled out of the no, motherboard? And no, no, it's all... No, okay. Yeah, it's, it's all living. Because even your BIOS, when you, when you boot up a computer, it's all living in that hard drive. Um, okay. So if you, if you replace the hard drive, um, again, 
these are worst case scenarios. Obviously, there's prevention measures. If you have the proper, and this is why I get so frustrated going back to the beginning when I hear news, oh, they had to pay the rent. There are, you know, it's more than just backup. It's what we call continuity systems with, with what's called immutable backup, kind of like blockchain technology, where you can actually decipher in a point in time, okay, this is when we were infected, and you can safely recover before that point in time. Then there's no need for all this. But the fact is, is most companies don't know about this, or even IT departments don't know about this type of technology. And so if they can't, without a shadow of a doubt, say, yes, we can recover and have no trace of any infection, yeah, you've got to rebuild it. And that's the cost, Mike, that's obviously always forgotten. You always hear the ransom, right? Oh, you know, they paid X amount, they paid this, they paid that. But what cost was it in downtime of productivity, right? Loss in reputation. Um, are you having any legal issues, right? We've seen that too, unfortunately. But then the cost to rebuild your network, I mean, you could be talking three, four, five, six months before you back up to the way you were, and now your IT team's completely off track of what they should be doing, right? So it, right. It, it gets pretty ugly. Based on your experience, you work with a lot of law firms and you work with you know random aqueous cleaner manufacturers and things like that, at least one. Um, what, what in your experience has been the average, if there is such a thing, an average ransomware amount? And what's the average asking price and what's the actual payment price on, on average? Yeah. So that's really, really interesting. Uh, it's grown. Uh, I guess inflation has been affecting the, the <laughs> community too. Uh, it's grown substantially. So I would say as, as recent as three, four years ago, if you had a $50,000 ransom, that would be average, right? For a small, medium-sized business, um, you know, if you had 30 to 50 employees, your $20 million, $30 million a year business, you'd get a $50,000 ransom, you'd pay it and, uh, and deal with it, right? We are definitely seeing uh, now because of that sophistication, like I was telling you, they're able to get your network and learn. They're going to take a look at your, your financials. They're going to say, what are your revenues? If, if, if you're not encrypting your data, they can look at your profit statements, perhaps look at your receivables. Uh, and then they make a lot when you more say I can't afford it. They can go au contraire. Exactly. They have that data. So which very common. Unfortunately, we're seeing half a million dollars. That's can become kind of the new floor. Um, the latest case I'm just dealing with is $8.2 million is the demand. Um, so that's, we're, we're definitely seeing them, you know, half a million to a million is probably your new average, I would say. Now, and I'm, I'm guessing that, I'm guessing that, uh, and, and I want you to finish that, uh, but I'm guessing that in order to maintain credibility, if you don't pay, they do destroy, right? Well, I mean, absolutely. you do not get it. It's not a, it's not a bluff in, no. in any case. No. Yeah, absolutely. Hell to destroy. So and, half a million and, dollars is kind of a, a new common ask. It is a new ask. And they've gotten really clever as well. Again, you got to think like them in a, from a business standpoint, right? Do they, the longer time goes on and the longer that they can engage a company like us where they get the FBI involved and just maybe you, you find a way to recover without paying the ransom, it's not good for their business. So now they have, they have time limits on it. They say, hey, you know, you're infected. You have 48 hours to pay. If you don't pay in 48 hours, we're going to delete half the data and it's gone forever and our, and our demand will increase. If you wait 72 hours, we'll get rid of it and, and they that's put like, these time simulations. That's like these, you know, Hollywood movies, it's probably based on real life, but that's like the Hollywood movies where they kidnap someone and say, you know, we're going to cut off their ear, then we're going to cut off their hand. And they're cutting off their data to prove their sincerity and, yep. and that they're going to do it. Um, I've also heard of cases where the prices go up after a certain amount of time, right? Because right. they want that impulse buy. They want that point of purchase, like, 
buy it now. And I guess anyone who's savvy in this, anyone in your in your world, might just go pay it now. That's good. That's a good price, right? Right. Yeah, and, and there's mixed uh, to kind of answer the other part of your question too. You know, there's there's off the record conversations we had with certain agencies. I'm not going to say the name, but they've already been mentioned. Where they say, yeah, just just pay it. But three uh, letters. Yeah, but yes. uh, in the early days, they would tell you, yeah, you know, don't pay it. Then they went, oh, you probably should pay it because it's changed, right? They, they see the devastation it could do. Um, but when you talk about what's actually paid, so this is, and we can have a whole, I mean, really, we could spend hours on, on different specific topics on cybersecurity. Um, but that's one of the reasons why having an insurance uh, company is, is, or a cyber insurance policy and the right one, which is a whole other topic, because now they're in it with you to negotiate and they'll make the payment on your behalf so that you're not, you know, uh, crossing any federal crimes. Uh, but they're going to negotiate that down and, and deal with these guys to bring that limit because now they're on the hook for it as well. Right. Uh, and, and get that payment done. Um, so, yeah, I know of one case pretty recent. I think the demand was two point seven five million. They settled for about one and a half. Um, you know, that was a hundred person company, just to give you, you know, some perspective. A hundred person company, two point X million dollars. Yep. Um, one point something paid. That seems awfully high if you count per employee. That seems awfully yep. high. Thankfully well, they had a good insurance policy, but then when it came time to renew, you can imagine what happened to their payment. Oh yeah. Insurance <laughs> policies are just loans basically. They'll they'll exactly. pay it off, but then you pay them back. That's right. So speaking of insurance, um most companies carry general liability insurance, which probably have a token amount for, if any, for this, maybe $10,000 or something. We had once an employee embezzle money from us and we had you know, embezzlement, we didn't have embezzlement insurance writer, just embezzlement was part of the myriad of things that covered, to, just a small token amount. So it covered about 10% of what that person embezzled. But 10% beats 0%. Um, do you recommend that companies carry a, cybersecurity policy um, as opposed to just relying on standard liability insurance? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's mixed feelings. I have, I have this discussion as a debate. Well, is it worth paying the premium or we just take our chance? Right. Just like you said, it's a loan. However, it's, it's more of the support. It's obviously the cost that they're going to help you with, but the support, you know, they'll bring a company like ours, they'll bring in a forensics company. They'll bring on, imagine that, you know, that hundred person company I just told you about with the one point one and a half million that they paid, they were they had to change all their hard drives. Now to change a hundred hard drives on a computer, I mean you need to feed <laughs> in the ground, and the insurance company will provide that as part of that service too. Right. You know, so it's not the just the payment of the ransom; it's it's the yeah. actual logistics and and labor involved in restoring your network. That's right. Now the challenge with insurance is, and it's changed. Uh, basically, the carriers have a lot of them have dropped out of the cyber insurance business. It's, they've been losing money on it, quite frankly. It's like buying fire insurance in California or earthquake insurance or, or a hurricane insurance in, in Florida, right? They're, they're out. Right. Yeah. So what they've done, and it's, it's, it's good and bad, I guess, is they've jacked up their premiums, as you can imagine. Uh, they've put in as many exclusions as possible. And this is kind of the dirty little secret. You know, when they're selling you the policy, it's not in their best interest for you to know every in and out, you know, or it's not in their best interest for you to be 100% compliant, you know. And, and again, I might get some flack for saying this and that we have a lot of insurance partners that we work with. But, I mean, if you get breached, 
and they can find it out. That's why they bring the forensics company. Of course. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's just the way insurance works now. Um, so the process of getting insurance has become much more expensive now. And the good ones um, are going to make the application process pretty difficult, which in my opinion is a good thing, right? They want to protect their investment and you really, your, your goal is to have it, but you don't want to use it, right? It's like having auto insurance. You, you don't want to get an accident. <laughs> That's not the point you want to do, but I will tell you, I've, I've worked with companies that have a good policy in place and the resources that they bring to the table from legal perspective, from forensics, from like I said, recovery perspective, it's, it's a game changer. And if, if you don't know you have cyber insurance, that means you don't. You would know it because it's quite a process to go through and, and obtain it. Yeah. Uh, many companies have internal IT departments. Um, and a lot of times, and some, you know, and some companies also outsource it, as we do. But some of the, in, a lot of companies that have, particularly medium, small companies that have IT departments, their job is primarily to connect new emails, you know, to hire employee, start an email, fire employee, delete an email, forward emails, uh, connection, connectivity issues, you know, stuff like that. They're, they're usually scrambling around, you know, explaining to people how to do certain things, right? How to set up the new computer, how to install software, whatever the case may be. And they may or may not be like uber knowledgeable in cyber security. That almost seems like a different set of skills offered by even different companies. Um, in your world, you know, you, you started off wanting to provide IT support services, cloud-based IT support services, so, you know, virtual servers on a cloud somewhere, stuff like that. Did you start off right out of the gate with as much security knowledge as you have now, or did you realize that that is actually a greater percentage of your daily effort than you expected when you first started? That's a great question. When we first started, we always, uh, you know, I'd say 10 years ago, IT and cybersecurity were melded into one. And I always use this analogy, if you're any of you are in business that are listening, you know, you might have thought sales and marketing were one thing, but they're really not. They're two different disciplines. They're, yeah. they're overall achieving the same goal, but completely two different uh, disciplines. And it's the same thing with, with us in IT and cybersecurity. So when we first started, we would always push training, we'd push MFA, kind of the basics, if you will, which unfortunately a lot of times still get, gets overlooked. But we learned about five, six years ago that this is evolving at a pretty rapid pace and you need, you need staff that are focused on that. And what does that mean? That means that they've been through the experiences, they've been through recovering, right? Because unless you've actually been through recovery of ransomware yourself firsthand, you don't know what to expect. And most IT departments in a company, yet, it's a good thing, haven't been through that, right? Or they don't go through it very often. They aren't going to conferences. They're, and the reality is, is a lot of, we have two sets of customers. We have customers that we provide IT and cybersecurity. And then we have sets of customers where we're just cybersecurity. And those are typically larger firms that have an IT department, right? So we complement them. And the reason is, and any of you listening that are in IT, you're a firefighter. Like you said, Mike, you're reacting, right? It's day-to-day. -day, it's this person's system is down, our production's down because this one computer down the line is down, the president can't email, or whatever it may be, and you're constantly dealing with user type issues. And those will always exist, and you need a good IT department for that. Um, or it's hardware-based, right? Are our, our servers running? You know, do we have the performance we need? It's, it's about performance and uptime. But you need that separate check, right? You need somebody 
there's a position being born in a lot of companies called the CISO, Chief Security Officer, right? Who is different than your CTO, Chief Technology Officer. All they're looking at is security, policies, and it's not all technology. Like you mentioned at the very beginning of our of our meeting here was, hey, when you get those weird payment instructions that are new, the policy is you should call, right? So you need somebody in the company whose job is to be writing, enforcing those policies and testing and checking them, right? And in some cases, you may be under compliance to do so anyway, so you need that position. So what we try to deliver is both of those parts with different people in our organization that are actually checks and balancing. So like right now, for example, we have someone's job, all their job to do is to run assessments on all the customers. They're not involved in support. They're not, they're, they didn't build the environment. They need to run what we call a penetration test and try to proactively find any gaps that are missed because you know, there is no IT department that is set up perfectly. Because even if you're set up perfectly today, next week, as we talked about before, there's new patches, new vulnerabilities. Day zero. Yep. Yeah, you're day zero again. So you, it's a constant battle, unfortunately. So when, when people outsource their IT support and cybersecurity, um, they're certainly outsourcing a certain amount of responsibility and tasks. Are they also outsourcing the liability? No. In other words, if I have a service like yours, which I do, um, if we get ransomware attacked, do I, and you call me and go, Mike, you've been attacked, or I call you and said, Adrian, we've been attacked, do you turn around and go, uh, and I, can I turn around and go, oh, wow, that sucks for you. How much are you going to have to pay? Or yeah. is it just, you know, there's, there's the, the liability still stays with the customer, right, with the yeah. user of, of the systems? Absolutely, yeah. The liability is, is and we always ask that uh, when we do it, is who, who's in charge? You know, who on your team is responsible for your compliance, let's say, or who on your team is responsible for right. doing these things? So we, it's, it's no different than having an internal IT department, right? If you get ransomware, does your IT manager pay the bill? No. At the end of the day, the company is responsible, right? And there's right. that due diligence that has to be done. The buck stops here. So if a company is looking for outsourced network security, IT services in general, but we're really focusing on network security, what types of questions should they be asking you or any of any company like yours? What, what questions would come from a savvy, smart buyer of services like the ones you provide? I mean, you can ask certain questions, right? You know, you're going to get various answers. Like, do you have dedicated uh, security experts? What certifications do you have? You know, how often are you training and going to conferences? Those are all great. But what I, what I really suggest to someone uh, or a company is looking to, to hire a security team, have them run a penetration test. And that might cost you something, but actually have them run a, a test, a vulnerability scan on your network without giving them any information, right? And so from there, an experienced security company is going to be able to show you those holes. And basically what we do when we do this is we white hack your network, right? We'll, we'll pretend that you got fished and let's see what we can find. Can we crack passwords? Do we see administrator information? Um, do we see vulnerable backups? That is the best place to start because then you know you've got someone that, that can show you what you don't know, right? And, and the, that's, the, that's the biggest risk we see in companies is companies just don't know, right? They assume, well, I must be safe. I mean, I've never heard of these things. I don't even know where to look. How do I know if I'm secure or not? So the first question, hey, can you guys run a vulnerability scan without, you know, there's different, they come in different flavors, but if they, if they come and say, oh, great, yeah, hand over your admin password, let's log into your server. That's not a real world scenario. You don't give that to a hacker. So have them, you know, sign an NDA, have them come in and run a vulnerability test 
and show you. Okay, this is what we see, you know, on, on, in the different areas that are gaps and vulnerabilities. Here's how to fix them, and here's our expertise to do so. It's, it's quite, it's really that simple. You know, a lot of your law firm clients and other type accounting firms and things like that, they rely on their computers, obviously, for day-to-day -day tasks, right? They're, uh, all the pleadings, all the, all the court correspondence, all that stuff for the law firms, all the ledgers and, and you know, uh, spreadsheets on the accounting firm, they need to be able to uh, have access to those and transmit those on demand. Uh, in our world, we have all that too because our world is a business. Um, but in addition, the electronic assembly space particularly in modern times, uh, is relying on computers to run all the various machines that are part of a typical um, surface mount assembly line. And uh, these machines, due to um, what in our world we call Industry 4.0, which is the connectivity of machine to machine, machine to uh, a server uh, for uh, everything is, we live in a world of big data. Uh, all these machines are producing, are capturing terabytes of, of, uh, of data uh, going up to some cloud server and that data from all these various machines is going up to one portal and being dissected and, and the use of AI is, is quite common now in our, our world to interpret that data and to make it actionable. Uh, and, you know, many modern assembly lines now have large screen displays on the wall that show real-time efficiency, optimization, line down, all that stuff, all due to, you know, industry 4.0 um, and the connectivity of, of machine to machine and, and other places. If in the electronic assembly world, like many other factories, if one computer goes down in the middle of the line one machine doesn't operate. Our, our world runs a very linear line, just like a, a Ford or GM assembly plant, right? A car is literally moving down a track. And if one operation stops, if the seats don't get bolted in, if they can't do that, someone has to push that dreaded red button and the line stops and nothing goes out the door. And, you know, that can really wreak havoc with a customer's bottom line, with a assembler's bottom line or any factory's bottom line. Uh, you, you don't want to be the person that has to press that button. Um, so in our world, you know, we have two threats. One is the threat to just general business practices, being able to send and receive emails, being able to uh, access our financials, being able to store confidential information, et cetera. But we also have a practical uh, need for computers to operate reliably, and that is to keep the assembly line moving, uh, even if they only attacked the equipment computers, you wouldn't need accounting systems, you know, because there's nothing to count because nothing's going out the door. So um, in our world, I think it's exceptionally important. And particularly, as I mentioned earlier, with many older machines having legacy computers that may not have had updates in a decade or more, with huge, giant vulnerability holes uh, that could be exploited now that they are connecting these machines online somewhere. Uh, it only takes one careless phishing email response for someone to gain access to a network and uh, they could start attacking it from the inside. And as you mentioned, if they realize, if they, if they see all your financials and they realize, ah, you don't have a lot of money, um, they may just sell your data. They may sell 
uh, confidential data. They may sell secret trade secret data. They may sell uh, government data, you know, yeah. ITAR stuff. Uh, and and that's, that's a huge threat. Uh, what types of questions, I asked what types of questions that a, a potential customer would ask a company like yours. What kind of questions do you ask your customers before you sign them up? Uh, do, you, do you vet your customers as much as your customers vet you? And if so, for what? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, we, we ask, typically we'll start and say, hey, can you show us your latest uh, documentation of your network? Can we take a look at your latest vulnerability scan? Pretty rare. If we see we get that back, great. We know it's going to be a little bit easier of a, of a network to support or secure. Um, but really, we do a full-fledged assessment. So exactly what you're talking about. We have a lot of clients in the manufacturing space that nowadays their equipment's all computer-driven, right? And a lot of it is either local, locally collected in the land, so it's computer in the shop connected to their systems, their ERP systems, so they know what's happening, or even internet controlled if they have multiple plants. Um, so it's really doing a full assessment to understand what, what are we trying to secure here? Um, and then really getting a gauge for the company culture, quite frankly. That's a lot of the questions we ask. You know, are you willing to do, because when it comes to security, I always say there's one side of the paradigm all the way over on one side that is, you know what, let's just lock down computers completely. Let's not even connect to the internet. Yeah, that's going to be very secure, but not very efficient, right? The other side of the spectrum is, Let's just have a network where yeah, no one, everyone can use password as the password. They never need to change it. And so we do a lot of interviews with kind of the leadership of the company and say, hey, how, how willing are you uh, to implement security? How far do you want to go? And are you willing to lead it? Right. And, and one, one good example is the security training. Um, it sounds super simple, but to actually get everybody to comply or use password management, if the top of the organization isn't going to be willing to lead by example and and then push it down. It's going to be very difficult to get a, a culture of, of security. I mean, and you you hear about it in the news, um, not to pick on Twitter. That was before Elon's time, but I mean, or X as they like to be called or now. X, they call it now, yeah. Um, but if you remember, wonder how much, I wonder how much it costs them to get X.com. Oh my gosh, a single letter domain? Yeah, it's millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you remember the last, I think it's within the last two years, they had a they had somebody call in to their IT support. Oh, I'm, I'm an employee. I need my password. And they gave it to them, right? So that really is, it, it's not a technical issue. It's a culture issue, right? They just didn't push that down. And hopefully it's they the weakest now. link. Yeah, they didn't. Totally so the, the weakest so link. Those are the type of things we sit down with the customer. We understand, okay, what do you do? You know, how, how do you, how do you make money? Quite honestly, who are your clients? You know, what are your processes in place now? And how serious are you to take on security? Now, it's an unfortunate thing, but unfortunately, most of the time we get approached after something has happened, or maybe they've had a scare, right? We actually had a really cool, finally, we had someone that had a very little scare. They had some intuition, some weird quirks happening in the network, and we're actually able to put our services in, and uh, we call our security operations center. We install some tools to look for weird activity, and we actually caught someone in the act Russia, uh, logging in from Russia to the RDP server, right? So we could see, okay, this someone's logging in as admin here. Let's just shut this down. And we know, but it could have been worse, right? So yeah, um, yeah time. hopefully that answers your question, but just trying to get the, the feel for how serious are they? You know, as we're, we're almost out of time, but I do uh, remember just a few years ago reading a story about, uh, I think it was a CIA, it could have been NSA, but I think it was a CIA program that was this, uh, 
um, black hat, you know, operation going on where the CIA or wh- whatever government agency had this kind of Trojan horse kind of uh, software thing. And we used it against state actors on the other side of the fence. Mm-hmm. And we could hack into their networks, not for ransomware, but, you know, for espionage, you know, for, for spy stuff, if spycraft. Uh, and then one day the CIA or whatever agency it was got hacked and that that particular Trojan horse became uh, available on the dark web. And, you know, all of a sudden we had CIA strength um, attacking software going after American companies. That's right. That, and that was created by mm-hmm. our own government, you know. And, and you don't need to be a conspiracy theorist to know that, that you know, this is certainly possible. We have... You know, but that would be akin to a terrorist stealing a nuclear bomb and using it on, you know, on us. It's, we, we designed it. We just didn't secure it, ironically, right? That, it blows my mind. Um, as we finish up, tell me about the importance of training. You talked about training. You have to train your, your customers, obviously. And I know from my experience, and I'm, don't tell me off here because I know I'm a little bit behind on my monthly uh, training uh, activities, um, but obviously, there's a need to continually provide training support because you know the day zero uh, instances. Uh, but how does the trainer get trained? How often? You know, obviously, the world has changed. The whole cybersecurity world has changed since we began talking about about uh, almost an hour ago. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's new threats in the last hour. So, uh, how do you, how often do you provide training to your customers? How often does your team go for training? Yeah, so training for our customers um, is continual, you know, so what we recommend, and this has become the norm in the industry. In fact, we're talking about insurance, a lot of insurance are requesting, hey, do do you have a security awareness training program, right? Um, Depending on your organization, it might be driven through HR and things of that nature, but existing employees should be trained at least annually with a required test that they have to pass, right? Uh, We now offer pre-screening employment. So when you're bringing in a new person that you're you're looking to hire, get a baseline of how much do they know about basic, you know, computer hygiene, let's call it. Um, but then ongoing, as often as every week, you should be sending updates about the latest threats that we see. Um, we call them micro trainings. And then how do you test it, right? I mean, in the old days, we would just, you know, customers say, can you come to a webinar for us or come in our conference room? How do you really know that people are paying attention? Well, we test them. So you can actually send your employees fake phishing emails and rate them. You know, are they, is, is Johnny over here keep clicking on these emails? Guess what? He's higher risk. So we call that, it's known in the industry as the human firewall. You have an actual firewall on your network, but your employees make up your human firewall. So how do you keep that updated, right? It's through training. Um, so that, that needs to be constant, ongoing. Uh, I always say when you hire that new person their first day as part of their onboarding, before they even log into your network, they should take the training, right? Um, little biggest uh, myth out there is, oh, the, the young generation I'm hiring there, they know everything about security. They should be fine. That's actually doesn't really necessarily mean anything because we see a lot of attacks happen to the new generation coming into the workforce. They trust them. They're born with a screen in their hand, right? So they see an email from the owner telling them to go buy gift cards. Like, oh, must, must be, I got to do that. I got to do the job. So make sure that you train them you know, when they first come in. In terms of our staff, on the security side or even the IT side, uh, we do the same thing internally, right? That we practice what we preach, but also continually going to conferences, just like you do in, in your uh, in your industry. Um, we also partner with other IT companies and government agencies. So 
So the FBI is sharing information with us because you know, the quicker we know about these zero day attacks, the quicker we know what to look for. Um, it, it's that simple. So it, it's ongoing. It's every month. It's, it's having meetings with our partners. It's every quarter going to the latest conferences um, and just sharing that information. I mean, that's the bad guys are doing the same thing. They, they have their little underground conferences and they're sharing their tools. just like you talked about, uh, you know, the, the latest tool they have that they can, they can make more money. They're going to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, we live in a very digitally connected world. Uh, many of our homes have cameras that are connected to our home Wi-Fi, ring doorbells, nest systems, things like that. Um, we have refrigerators now that are connect connected devices where you, we could look what at the contents of our fridge from the grocery store. Um, I have six Apple TV boxes in my house. You know, each one is connected to my iCloud account, which in itself stores a bunch of sensitive data. Um, when we think of IT support, you know, we think of computer server uh, networks and things like that in a traditional business sense. Um, many of the businesses within our space and pretty much any other factory also have online security cameras and other appliances, which are not really considered computers, but they, they are connected. You know, there's a lot of connectivity within those. How vulnerable are those less, uh, those devices that are not commonly associated with a computer or, or identified as a computer, but certainly have computer-like um, capabilities um, that are connected to the same network their actual computers are connected to, uh, is there a, a threat among those devices? Or is anyone looking out my ring doorbell or looking in my refrigerator to see how much milk I have and whether or not it's expired? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. And, and absolutely, yes. So think about, you know, we call the Internet of Things or all these devices connected to the Internet in your home or even at work. Think of them as doors or, or windows. The more doors and windows you have in a building, this is just physical security 101, right? The more uh, surveillance you're going to need, the more security you're going to need. And, and guess what? We've had this door in this building for 10 years. No one's ever opened it. Let's just seal it shut, right? It's that sort of thing. So when it comes to yeah, the thermostats, you know, the nests out there, uh, all your Apple TVs, there's some basics that you need to cover for, um, making sure that when you set them up, you set them up securely, not with just the default passwords. Uh, how often are you changing those passwords? Is the password you use for your nest the same thing you use to log into your bank account, right? I mean, those type of things, right? And so... Um, we, we train on that security best practices, uh, but you also bring up another point. And this is something that we're actually launching right now is executive cybersecurity, right? So especially after COVID, we see a lot of just employees in general, but especially executives are working more from home and they're, they're using personal devices to connect to the corporate network and they've got the nest at home. And wouldn't it be great as an attacker if you can get in through someone's thermostat, lay dormant, wait till they connect to their corporate network and they get into the corporate network that way, yes. <clears throat> so there's a growing need to secure that on the personal side, right? Separate from the company. Um, and a lot of, a lot of large, large uh, enterprises, the Fortune 500 are starting to realize that. Like, uh-oh, we've sent everybody home. You know, we've got our vice president of so-and-so uh, who's been compromised, but is at home. It's on his nest, right? <laughs> how do we block that? And so it's, it's, a, it's the new challenge for us in our industry is how do we protect people at home? But also respect their privacy, right? I mean, because you don't necessarily want your IT person at your in your work, in your company, uh, knowing everything about your, your personal life too. So it's a, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, it definitely is still a, it's a threat. It's just another opening 
for a threat actor to take advantage of. And it's not necessarily that you do anything wrong, right? You should secure them and, and have the proper passwords. But if they have a vulnerability, right? If your Alexa device has a vulnerability, how, how do you know and protect yourself against that? That's the hard part. And my last question, uh, what's the future? Get out your crystal ball. What's the future of cyber, uh, digital security, cybersecurity, security for our appliances and, and our computers? Yeah, well, the, the future, unfortunately, looks like a growing business. I mean, it's, it's a good thing for us, quite frankly, but to, you know, for the hackers. It's, I good, it's good for you and the criminals. Yeah, it's good for us. <laughs> <laughs> you um, all could go on vacation together. We're a lot, we're a lot cheaper than the criminals. So. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think they're doing better than you. Yeah, unfortunately. So, um, they just don't have any ethics, I guess. And they live in different countries, typically. But uh, the future that I see, and we all, the buzzword, of course, is AI, but I, I think it's it'd be naive to, to neglect it. Um, I see the future, which is now actually, AI is being taken advantage of on the criminal side, um, you know, with voice recognition, with phone spoofing, with video technology, um, writing nice phishing emails for them at a higher volume. I see that AI is gonna definitely uh, help them uh, increase their, their attack volume, let's say. But I also see it ha helping us. You know, we're starting to use it uh, in our software to look for, you know, before AI was around, or really start with machine learning, now we're actually starting to use AI. You're, you're counting on software to send you an alert of something that looks weird, but I still need a human to look at that and decide is this safe or not, right? The problem with humans is we eat and we sleep and we get sick and we celebrate holidays. And uh, this is, you know, a lot of attacks actually over, happen on holidays. Over celebrate holidays. Over celebrate in some cases, and maybe that Monday morning you're not so sharp. And so now we're starting to leverage AI to look at thresholds for us, right? Because if we can have it look first and use its judgment as it's learning and look for anomalies, by the time it gets to us, we know, okay, we don't have to sit and spend an hour to realize is this dangerous or not. We know this is highly likely dangerous. We need to act immediately. So um, that's where I see the future going. Um, it's just going to be that constant war. It's the, the same, you said this earlier, the same tools that we have, they have. So it's, uh, you know, not to sound cooler than our job is, but it really is a war. You know, and we have to just be fighting it back and forth until, um, until we can find a solution where, you know, we, we reduce the demand and that's by taking good preventive measures they're still going to be around. And I guess it's really the age old question of having criminals, right? If they're just using, they used to rob banks back in the day or, or stop stagecoaches and horses. Now there's, this is a great life for them. They can do it behind a screen. So right. until we can find out how to get rid of criminals, an unfortunate statement. Away. Yeah, I think it's definitely here to stay. And both sides, both the bad guys and the, you know, the black hats and the white hats, uh, the good news is, I guess, the, the tools that enable each to be successful, grow at a fairly similar pace. Right. So they, yeah, they'll exploit AI, we'll exploit AI. So we end up with just, really it comes down to, in my opinion, it, it comes down to humans. Uh, you know, the technology to prevent these things is there. Um, maybe, maybe a nanosecond after, you know, so you have that day zero effect, maybe by day two, it, it's solved. So a small percentage of, of people would be affected by it. If, if it was your unlucky day. But really, I think what the, the, the bad actors are counting on are people and human frailties and mm -hmm. laziness or just people who don't care or worse, criminals on the inside, you know, uh, someone who's getting paid 
100 bucks to provide a password or something. Yeah. Post-it <laughs> notes with passwords on it on the computer, all that yeah. stuff. That really, uh, that will never go away. Right? It there's always it human that, nature. It's that human element of it won't happen to me. We're all guilty of it in all areas, right? Not just cybersecurity that they count on. They know that the average business is thinking it won't happen to them. So there, there's yeah. still a market for them. You know, but if, uh, look, I'll, I'll end it with this. It's, it's kind of like they say, you know, uh, the best way to prevent a shark attack is to swim faster than your friend. <laughs> and that's just true. The, that's the reality. Um, that's a gruesome <laughs> one. But it, just like business is competitive in your own business and, and being productive, providing better equipment, uh, better service, better pricing, or maybe you have to look at it that way, cybersecurity, you know, be, be more secure than your peers around you and your chances of going through it are, you know, diminished because they're going to go after the lane for just that simple. Yeah. Well, Adrian Franco's Zeta Sky, Zeta with a Z. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Uh, thanks for keeping our network safe. Uh, and, uh, um, keeping us all connected, and, and uh, thanks for uh, constantly uh, educating me on the stuff that keeps much of the world up at night. I, I appreciate it. I sleep a little better knowing that someone's watching that end of our business and that I don't particularly understand as well as you do, and I don't even know if I want to. So um, <laughs> I appreciate that. For uh, our listeners and our viewers, if you'd like to get a hold of uh, Zeta Sky, um, even if you're out of state there in Southern California. I'm not trying to promote their business, but uh, if you'd like to reach out to them, I know they have a lot of good tools. I know they, they would be happy to send you at least basic information that you might be able to apply locally. Um, feel free to reach out, look at the show notes. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, um, when, you're, when you pull over and you're in a safe place, uh, open up that podcast app and look at the show notes and you'll have contact information there. Uh, October, oh, also if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, right down here, there's a button that says show more. Uh, just click that. And uh, in that text, you'll also see uh, contact information uh, for Zeta Sky. Uh, Adrian mentioned that uh, October is Cyber Awareness Month. And if you are in Southern California, the FBI is doing some stuff, as I understand it, where they are, they're inviting the public. Um, this is one of the times you might want to go to the FBI. Um, maybe <laughs> any other time it would be a little scary, but uh, they're inviting the public. Uh, I'm not sure when that event is. Uh, if that event is after the release date for this episode, obviously I won't post it. If it is before the release date of this episode, I will post it. So if you don't see it, it's because it, it's in the past. But um, um, you could always reach out to your support company or Zeta Sky and find out when something like that is happening in your area again. Uh, the FBI and other government agencies and the service providers themselves do a really good job at keeping the public generally informed. So um, thank you, Adrian, for being my guest. I appreciate your, your expertise and your willingness to share it with my audience. Absolutely. Thank you again. It was lots of fun. And, and uh, I appreciate you sharing some awareness. It's uh, the whole goal. Yeah, it takes a village. Good to see you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Good the job, podcast Mike. on you're your favorite podcast I'm call you Mike Rogan. if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure and click <laughs> the like, subscribe, and bell icons to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. And once again, a very special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at Reliability.fm 
for syndicating the show. Thanks again for being part of our podcast family. Do you have any questions or comments about this or other past episodes? No problem. Just reach out to me. My email address is right over here. I love to hear from you and I'll respond as soon as I can. Thanks again for being part of our podcast family. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.